extremely important is it doesn't work unless there's ongoing mentoring. I mean, if you just provide micro loans and you bring them into a school or a church, and then you say, good luck, you're trained, it, it absolutely does not work. And so our students are very good at mentoring these people through the startup and through the scale up. And then they stay on for, like I say, months. We have clients we've worked with for five and six and seven years. And, you know, the students are, you know, they're young undergraduate students, but the businesses are kind of at the level of a lemonade stand. And so the main thing the students do is they just follow up every week. What are we going to do this week? Welcome to the Jeff Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. And I'm excited to have Mike Blauser on the show today. Mike, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jess. I'm really thrilled to be with you. I'm excited to talk to you. So let's start with telling people the name of your new book and the premise of it. And then I want to talk a little bit about your background because I find it really interesting. Okay. So the book's called One People, One Planet. The subtitle is Six Universal Truths for Being Happy Together. And really, I wrote the book. I've been working on it for years, but it was really, I was motivated to finish it during the COVID years. And the reason is we're really experiencing an epidemic of despair in the country. I mean, anxiety, depression, loneliness suicidal thoughts, and unfortunately, even suicides have all gone up at almost every age group. And the problem is particularly strong and troubling to me in the high school and college age, and then the millennial age group, which is in the 20s to 40s. And some of the statistics are just really, really concerning. For example, high school, 40% of high school students now say that they feel a, a, a persistent sense of sadness and hopelessness. That's four out of 10. And 20% of them have thoughts of suicide. And I heard this this last year, very unfortunately, the suicide deaths for high school students were higher last year than the deaths from automobile accidents. And, you know, at the college level, it's just as bad. About 40% of people say they have depression and anxiety so bad they can't work a lot of the semester. And 60% of them in one survey said that they feel lonely a lot of the time. And then in the millennial group, we're seeing a lot of an increase in anxiety and depression greater than any other uh, period for that age group. And so my first motivation is, you know, are, is there a set of proven concepts that could help us to really increase our happiness, improve our relationships, and also really improve the civility in organizations, in our communities and in our organizations? And so that was one motivating factor. A second factor was, I call it the epidemic of incivility. There's just more anger and hatred and judging between religions and political parties and, you know, countries. And that seems to be getting worse. And everyone we've interviewed, dozens and dozens of people, and some of these are professional, you know, psychologists and social workers, we say, why is this happening? And there's a lot of reasons. It's it's complicated. But one of the things they all say is that this new social media has changed the human condition. You know, we're social creatures. We like to be together. We need to be connected. We are now more connected than we've ever been before, but in superficial ways online. And so we're more isolated than ever before. We, we don't have the kinds of friendships and intimate conversations and going out and doing things together that we once had. And this was kind of surprising to me that when uh, young people get a notification on their phone or they get a, uh, a friend, a contact, or when they're playing a video game, the brain releases the same chemicals that we get from recreational drugs. So, you know, oxytocin and uh, serotonin and uh, those kinds of drugs. And so we're becoming addicted to being isolated and using technology, but we forefooted those those really warm, intimate relationships we used to have where we kind of balanced each other, other out and talked and we knew when someone was in trouble. And so we're just living in a different world. And I thought if I can, if I can write a book that will help with that problem of despair and incivility, even if it only helps a small group of people, that would be awesome. And if it helps a lot of people, that would even be better. That's great. Well, can you talk a little bit about building and selling companies in the university and, and kind of what got you to this point in life? 
Yeah, I was really, when I was at the university years ago, I was really interested in entrepreneurship. It wasn't called that back then, you know, organization development. And I thought it would be really pretty incredible if I could learn how to build really satisfying human organizations that met important goals, where people liked to work, where we had a strong set of values. And so that intrigued me all through school. And I went straight through bachelor's, master's, and PhD at an early age and started teaching at the University of North Carolina when I was 27 years old. And I realized my first class I taught was an MBA class. And I was the youngest guy in that class by about 15 years. Now, these were executives in Greensboro, North Carolina. And so I quickly realized if I wanted to ever be a thought leader, I needed to leave the safe harbor of academics. So I stayed about four years in academics and then went out and started building companies. And it was, it was kind of frightening really, because you go out and you build these companies and they fail. Then you go back to the university and you're that, that professor that tried to do it. And it couldn't, it, you couldn't make it work, you know? So now you're teaching. And so I built, actually built about six companies during this period of my life and sold two of them to a public company in Toronto. And you know, one was a failure. I probably learned the most from the failure. And then I went back in academics. And which industries? I know you and I talked about this a bit at lunch, but. So I've had a, a consulting firm. I've had an online training company, which I still own. We, my wife and I created a business in the health and fitness industry called Pursuit of Fitness. Then I had a, a retail frozen dessert company uh, called Golden Swirl and a whole same company, but a different brand called Northern Lights that was the wholesale distributor of those products. And we built that company. We had about 600 employees. We had distribution around the United States and even overseas. And then our wholesale company, we had about 2,000 customers. And, you know, one, one year I was sitting in my office and I got three offers for the business. It was never put up for sale. And so I sold it and got back into consulting and writing and academics. I went back to the university university after that experience. And then how long have you been back at uh, Utah State University now? So I, I agreed to go for three years to build a center for entrepreneurship. I thought it might take three to five, and I just finished my 11th year, and I'm starting my 12th year in Oktoberfest. And the reason I go back is it's one of the most incredible places I've never worked. We have a remarkable culture. Uh, we're very supportive. We have a dean that is a business leader, not an academic, and uh, he's brought in a whole new faculty. He's raised $100 million, has built new buildings, and we have a lot of freedom. If we can create value for students, you always have a place there. And if you're not good in the classroom, you don't have a place there. We do write and we do research, but you know, our number one priority is to build one of the best undergraduate programs in the country. And it's just, it's so enjoyable to keep going back each year that I keep doing it. And I'm going to go back next year too. Well, I'm not surprised that Utah State won't let you go when you invite me to join the board there, the Entrepreneurship Center. I saw how, how much people lean on you and how you've really got a group of influential people to really care about those kids and help those students. So not surprised they hold on to you. You know, and the other, the main reason I'm staying now is this uh, SEED International program we're building is one of the most exciting things I've ever done. And as you know, we have a hundred students that we select each year and train in small business development development and microfinance. And then we send them out in the world where they're all year long, uh, fall, spring and summer semester. And we work with people that live in poverty and teach entrepreneurship and self-sufficiency. And we'll stay with them for months and even years. And so we have partners, various church organizations, NGOs, governments. Uh, we have, we've taught about 5,000 clients around the world and helped build almost a thousand new companies. And in almost every case, after about a year, their household income goes from $200 a month to four or $500 a month, which it doesn't sound like a lot to, to you and I, but that brings them out of the poverty class and kind of puts them in the lower middle class. And so it's just, it's a fabulous experience for these students. They come back changed and then we help bless lives in the process. So I'm just finding that really enjoyable. 
Well, I heard about that program of yours for years from Chris and some of the other professors there before you and I actually met. And it, it definitely has a reputation as like, this is this is something significant that lasts in the student's life for years and, and impacts the world. And can you go over again, which countries you're in, how long you've been in those countries? So we're in Peru. We've been this, we've been around for about oh, 11 or 12 years, pretty much since I got to Utah State. We're in Peru. We have three locations in Peru. We're up in the Andes Mountains in Terrapoto. We're in Trujillo on the Northwest coast and in Lima. We're in the Dominican Republic in Guatemala. We have several locations in the Philippines, in Quezon City and Pasig City, and we're in Eastern Ghana. So there's so many, you know, do good programs where we're, you know, it's, we're going to show up and we're going to help these poor people fix their problems that have such terrible track records and get dumped on. What do you think you guys have done differently that it actually works and that you're consistently invited back and that you have like such a track record where so many other folks, they, you know, they have good intentions, but they don't have the results that your seed program has. You know, poverty alleviation is a very complicated, difficult uh thing to address. And you need several components in place to make it work. And so one, you need usually some funding. They need funding to buy inventory and to get started and create products, their initial products. Then you need people to teach. So you need organizations that know where these people are and have facilities to go find them and bring them into the centers. And then what we do is extremely important is it doesn't work unless there's ongoing mentoring. I mean, if you just provide micro loans and you bring them into a school or a church and then you say, good luck, you're trained, it, it absolutely does not work. And so our students are very good at mentoring these people through the startup and through the scale up. And then they stay on for, like I say, months. We have clients we've worked with for five and six and seven years. And, you know, the students are, you know, they're young undergraduate students, but the businesses are kind of at the level of a lemonade stand. And so the main thing the students do is they just follow up every week. What are we going to do this week? Did you do it? How can we help? How can we bring resources? They don't let them forget that they're trying to build a company. And it's that ongoing mentoring that um, leads to great friendship that seems to be the success. And then we all, we're also trying to help these organizations we work with become sustainable by building. You know, we work with a lot of after uh, care centers of women that have been rescued from the slave trade and they have to support themselves. So we're trying to help them build beauty salons and catering companies and things that generate their own revenue. So these women are rescued. They're brought into these centers. They get to work in a hair salon or in a restaurant or a catering company and they learn that skill. And then when they leave that center, they're able to launch that type of business. So I think um, helping the centers that we work with become sustainable, having the partners for the, to bring in the people, to identify them, and then having micro lenders. We have lenders in every country that we're in that we work with. And then we're just there forever. We're there, you know. <laughs> I go back to the Philippines and I'll see, you know, women that I saw eight years ago. And we're still visiting them, encouraging them. And we have some really great successes, you know. We've we've seen some companies grow to doing five, six thousand, ten thousand US dollars a month and netting a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars, which is unbelievable in, you know, Ghana, Africa or the Philippines or the Dominican Republic. You know, those those are the exceptions, not the norm, but we have some of those. Well, you know, our listeners know a lot about um, the charity I started 13 years ago, Child Rescue Association with, with some co-founders. And you and I have talked about this, you know, at the university had launched things like this. But just now I thought we should schedule some other episodes on the show. I would love to talk to some of the people who specifically helped with those aftercare facilities. Like maybe we should have you come co-host an episode with me and let's have some yeah. people on who helped those women get a new shot at life. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be great. We have partners that lead us to these organizations and we have people I can find to bring to a episode. That'd be fun. Well, I would love to hear one of your favorite stories from the new book. Is that okay? Yeah. 
So there's lots of stories. We've interviewed, you know, hundreds of people over the years. I guess one that I really like is David. David was arrested for the first time at 18 and spent two years in prison in Los Angeles. He he hated it, but he, he didn't learn anything. He came out, he was out for three months and, and then arrested again and, and served a three-year term. He was out another two to three months and was arrested and served a five-year term, was out a few months and then was arrested again and served a 10-year term. So now he's been in prison about, you know, 10 years, 20 years. And he's out again and he gets arrested and he's given 29 years and plea bargains it down to 22 years. So he's basically going to spend the rest of his life in prison. And uh, the judge gave him a break and let him go to a place called Delancey Street in Los Angeles. Angeles, which is a program to completely reorient you to life and help you become a decent person. It lasts two to three years. And if you go there and you stay there, you go through the program, then your prison sentence is erased. So, you know, he had a lot of motivation to go. And at first he was a little, he was a little resistant to the program because he was, he was the leader of the white gang in the prisons. He, he says, I held the keys to the yard. He, he basically led the fights. He stabbed people. He was a really, really tough, mean guy. And when he went to Delancey Street, he realized, that, you know, he didn't want to, that's not who he was. He thought I was always kind of a kind person deep in my heart, but he'd built up this ego that he was the toughest, meanest, baddest guy there was. And uh, he had to defend that reputation. He said, it's easy to be a leader amongst losers. And that's what he became. And he started helping other inmates realizing that we all need to change here. And there's some principles that will help us change. And I will mentor you and I will help you. And he got a reputation. He was called Dinner Date Dave at Delancey Street because he would schedule dinner with a new inmate every time, a new resident. And he started feeling this super high from doing good deeds. And he started to see this old ego melt away. And he said, loving people, being decent, be kind, helping them is so much better than being bad that it was like a drug. And there's no, it doesn't cost anything and there's no come down. So he stayed and ran that LA facility for eight years. And then he moved to, and I met the founder, Mimi Silbert, uh, who I've known for years, the founder of Delancey Street. And then David, I always thought when I get a little older and long in my career, I'm going to bring a Delancey Street organization at Sully. But Dave Drocher and Joseph Grenny beat me to it. And they moved an organization here that Dave is the executive director of. They've been here about six years. He's one of the most incredible people I've met. He could be running a Fortune 500 company. He's, he's that good of a leader. And he's changing lives. There's about more than 100 people in the facility here. And he's one of the happiest guys I know. And he's a role model to me. I look up to him as much as anyone I know because, you know, he's gone through things I'll never have to go through. And he's overcome them. And I'm not sure I would have made it through those things. So that's just one of dozens of stories in the book. But I did do a, a They've applied these concepts to change their lives. And I wanted to write a book that wasn't boring. So I tell the stories to reinforce and teach the concepts. And he's, that's one of many stories in the book. So I didn't know you were going to bring up Dave. I love Dave. He had, I got to go do a tour over there at the other side Academy. And I am such a fan. I'm jealous that you know Mimi Silbert though. I've been watching her YouTube videos, like her speeches and stuff for years. I, I'm a fan. So I, I feel like you're a lucky guy to know her. I can tell you a funny story about her if, if you're yeah. interested. So I interviewed her about, I met her about 20 years ago and spent time with her, interviewed her for a book that I wrote called The Business of Heart. And I featured Delancey Street. And then years later, when we moved into video, I wanted to put that whole program on video, the people from that book. And I went back to interview Mimi on camera at Delancey Street. 
And we checked into the facility and the woman that met us, you know, was a former convict and an addict. And she said, who are you guys? And we said, well, we're, you know, we're just some guys from a university. And she said, no, no, no. Who are you? I said, well, yeah, you know, we're writers and authors. And she said, listen, who the hell are you? Because Mimi won't let ABC in here, NBC in here, CBS, Fox News. She won't let anyone in here. So why is she letting you in here? <laughs> and I found out later that she had taken that chapter from my book copied it and used it to explain to people what Delancey Street was. If they had questions, said, here, read this. And she told me, she said, you're the only guy that got it right. And I just said, I just took your recorded interview with me and I edited it a bit and put your actual words and your story in my book. And so that's how we kind of became close. And that's how I got to know Mean Silver. Well, I mean, their track record is incredible. I think one of the things that I love about them and I love about what Dave is doing at the other side of the academy here in Utah is they're proving that your past doesn't have to determine your future. You know, yeah, all of these exactly. people who others would normally have written off who society in general writes off, they, they, they prove humans can change. You know, there's that uh, quote from Warden Duffy, you know, the first guy in the 50s who was putting programs in, in prisons to help people get job skills. He was getting criticized all the time. People would say things like, don't you know lepers can't change their spots? And he would say, don't you know I don't work with lepers? I work with men and men change every day. Yeah. Well, this is the first principle in the book. I call it give up the ego. And we use the term ego to describe someone that's really proud and cocky and full of himself or herself. And But ego, the way it's been used, you know, throughout the years is that it's the, the composite of the perceptions we have about ourselves. It's the whole set of perceptions of who we are that have developed early on from parents and peers and teachers and coaches. And so we say, you know, I'm too tall or I'm too thick or too thin or I'm not handsome enough or I'm really handsome or I'm a good athlete or I'm a terrible athlete or I'm a kind person. That kind of puts us in this box. And there's a lot of research that shows those self-perceptions, that ego, it's a fabrication, it's an illusion. It's not who we really are or could become. But the sad thing is it sets real bounds and limitations on what we're able to do and willing to even try. And it also promotes a real self-centeredness. You know, we think me, me, me all the time. We look in the mirror and we think about who we think we are and do we have the right clothes on today for that event we're going to? And did we say the right things? And it's like we're on this claustrophobic treadmill of self-centeredness, like we're the star of our own movie and give up the ego as I define it in this book. And as, as it's been defined for thousands of years by philosophers and religious leaders is to, to lose yourself. To decide, you know, I'm a work in progress. I'm okay. I can do lots of things. I'm not bound. And I'm going to go out today and see how I can make a contribution to other people's lives and create value. And when you lose that, that ego, you just become completely free. And uh, the way to do that is you have to have experience. You have to realize where these perceptions came from and that they're not real. And you have to start surrounding yourself with people that will give you different feedback about yourself. And then you have to do things outside your comfort zone to prove to yourself that, hey, you know, I didn't think I could do that, but I can. These are small steps. And before long, you set up this upward spiral of success where one success leads to a little bigger success, which leads to a little bigger success. And so that's the first concept in the book to really finding personal happiness is we've, we've got to give up that ego or that fabricated set of perceptions we have that, that we've used to define me, you know, who we are. You know, and that's I, what Dave does. Very well, right? Very well. You know, I'd, I'd love to think maybe back to your experience growing a business to 600 employees and, you know, all these different wholesalers or distributors across, you know, geography. How do you feel like that principle helped you in building that business to that, that kind of size? Well, I've seen, I've seen this over and over and over again, not just in my own business. But we've interviewed almost a thousand entrepreneurs over the years. And what you do is you, you 
think of, you define your business the best that you can, and then you launch it. And it never goes the way that you think it's going to go. And it costs more, it earns less, it takes more time. And so you pivot a little bit. And then the next thing you try goes a little bit better. And then you pivot again. And so you keep having these small successes to survive and stay alive. And before long, you end up in a place you never dreamed you were going to be because one success leads to the next, which leads to the next. And the first time I interviewed entrepreneurs for a book, it was called Glorious Accidents because I kept hearing that term. This was an accident. It wasn't what I started to build. But as you have success, your confidence goes up. So you say, hey, let's add another product. Let's add another region. Let's merge with another company. And you just, you kind of keep having these successes along with the hard times. And you end up building something that isn't quite what you thought. And that's what happened to me. My wife and I, she's training nutrition and, uh, you know, fitness and community health. And my experience was in building companies. And so we thought, let's open a few of these stores and have fun. And maybe our kids will be able to work in them someday. And we'll generate a side hustle, some additional income. And, and the first few stores were just, you know, huge successes. They were it, it tell profitable products. So what we did is we created a whole, you know, we believed this was at a time where people were really getting into health foods, you know, it was kind of the granola people and the tree huggers and, and everyone said they wanted to be healthy. But the fact is we wouldn't compromise taste to eat something that tasted bad. And there was a yogurt that came on, on a line that everyone believed was really healthy. You know, had a, it had natural ingredients, but it tasted like, you know, it could take the chrome off the bumper of your car. It wasn't good. And so we thought, hey, what if we created a, an ice cream type product that was a yogurt, had all those active cultures in it, and it had no fat and low calories, but it tasted like Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And so we were catering to the pseudo health people, you know, that wouldn't compromise taste. And we launched these stores and uh, the first two we opened in malls and they were profitable from the first month. And so then we were, had access to funding and we had more malls calling us and we said, well, let's go to five stores. And then we, we grow almost a hundred percent every year for the first five or six years. Uh, and then 50 to a hundred percent until we sold the company. We had 80 retail locations and uh, 2000 wholesale customers. We spun out the wholesale side. Everyone kept calling us saying, we want you to use your product in our hotel or our casino or our restaurant. And I said, no, 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 no. This is a proprietary product. And then what I realized is I could put it in a different box with a different name and sell it to them. And so we started a wholesale line that just took off and kind of became the core company. It was a glorious accident. I got three offers. One of them was for Mrs. Fields and one of them was from a uh, sports betting company in Las Vegas. And the third one was a public company in Toronto. And their offer wasn't quite as strong, but they said, you know what? We've got offices in Dallas and we've got other products and got an executive team and we want to move the office. And, you know, we don't really need you or your team. They said that there's one thing that'll be a deal killer. We don't need you or your team. And you have to take cash for this product, for this business. And I pretended like I was real concerned for about 10 seconds because we didn't really want stock in their company. So, okay, deal. A month later, they owned it and I was gone. Freedom, huh? It was a crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's do this. I know we're about up for time for part one. Why don't you tell people the best place to get their own copies of the new book or where to follow you on social, LinkedIn or whatever? And so we, I'm on all the social sites, just my sites, mine Glauser. And then we have a website, onepeopleoneplanet.com. And uh, the book, book will be on all the, you know, retail sites on Amazon and hardback, softback, ebook, and the audio book will be coming out shortly after those. And so it'll be available to anyone that uh, wants to take a peek. I don't know when this will air, but the week that it launches, June 21st to the end of the month, it'll be 99 cents. The ebook will be 99 cents. 
to kind of sell it, but we want to get it into as many hands as we can, help as many people as we can and make a splash in the market. So that looks great. And then to end, can you tell people who want to find out more about the seed program of helping these entrepreneurs all around the world, where the best place they can do that is? Yeah. If they just go to the Huntsman website, uh, huntsman.usu.edu, that's our website at the Huntsman School of Business. And if you go to programs, the seed program, the Center for Entrepreneurship is listed there and the seed program is found within the Center for Entrepreneurship. Yeah. We got a lot of videos, a lot of information about it there. And it's the neat thing about it, Jess, it's open to any student from any university. It's not just a Utah State program. So we've had a lot of students from other universities participate. That's pretty neat to put them all together in an apartment in the Philippines. Yeah, it's great. My, my oldest is going to college this year and I told her, I know you're not going to Utah State, but I think you need to apply for this program. So we'd love to have, expect one more application. Oldest. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Please tune in to part two. I've got a bunch more questions for Mike. Thanks so much.